This is Leading the Way, a Ranger's Heart, a podcast series listening to the hearts to those who serve. I am your host, Michael Curtis. Before we begin our episode today, I want to give a warning that this episode contains strong adult content and subject matter. We will be hearing and discussing topics such as PTSD with war trauma stories, depression, and addiction. This episode is intended to be a conversational starter and direct those in need to resources with individuals who are professionally trained and equipped to handle difficult topics. Please, at any time in this conversation, if this episode becomes too much to handle, call 877-717-7873. That's 717-PTSD. This is a 24-7 hotline with trained combat veterans answering calls. The Share the Wheel Foundation focuses on multiple community projects and challenges throughout their year, the focus being veterans. At our foundation core, we at Share the Wheel believe it is important of supporting veterans looking to rebuild their lives after serving in either the front or rear lines of battle. Each veteran service is vital as a team and as a family. In partnership with the community, such as civilians like myself, Share the Will helps find a bridge between veterans and the community. In building that bridge, it helps to know where we are starting from. On this episode, I am joined by First Sergeant Will Williams and Share the Will board member Brenda Bentley in listening to Sergeant Michael Carson's story. Michael is a graduate of Camp Hope, a program designed to help veterans suffering from PTSD. Michael shares the story of joining the military, his deployment overseas to Iraq, a peacekeeping mission in Kosovo, addiction, loss of friends from deployment or by suicide, rebuilding his connection to his family, and his fight to help his brothers and sisters who are also battling PTSD. I hope Michael's story, even with the darkness, helps others who are battling PTSD, military or civilian, feel that they are never alone. Michael can be reached at Carson at ptsdusa.org or by his phone number 713-857-2942, which this will all be in the show notes. I'd like to give a special shout out to my Central Michigan University alumni peer, friend, and musician, J.D. Dominiski, and allowing me to share his song at the end of this podcast. J.D.'s song is called A Lucky Man. A link to the song will be posted in the show notes. If anybody would like to know more about the Share the Will Foundation, simply find us at sharethewill.org or email us at sharethewill@outlook.com. You tell me I'm a lucky man, but I don't really understand what any of this has to do with love. Okay, today we have a full house of guests in our roundtable discussion of veteran PTSD depression, anxiety, suicide, as well as the redeeming power of sharing our stories to combat these real-life struggles uh, to rebuild meaningful connections. So first, let me introduce, we got Share the Will board member Brenda Bentley in her role as co-host. Hi, Brenda. Hello. Oh, man. I don't know where that came from. All right, let's start that. (laughs) So, Brenda, you know, we were recently talking about our mutual love of Star Wars. 
this morning before the interview, and I bring this up as in the series, they talk about the light and dark side of the force and like all the emotions around it. Is it me or does that feel like the journey we're about to take today? I feel exactly that same way. Um, You sent me um, some information on Michael and the more I started looking into Michael, I, all I could think about was Luke Skywalker Um, because it's kind of the same story when you start out with a new hope. Um, he's, um, he's living with his uncle and he's a moisture farmer. Michael's dad was a farmer and he wants to go out and fight. And his, his uncle is like, like, no, I need you to stay at least one more season. And I think Michael was talking about the same thing when he was wanting to go national guard. His father was upset because he was like, no, I need you to stay at least in this season. And it's just kind of weird because in the same, by that same vein, you know, Luke Skywalker was kind of thrust into the middle of this war, um, you know, through some traumatic events with his aunt and uncle and just had to just go off to war. And I just felt like that was kind of Michael's story as well. I mean, there's not this glamorous Hollywood ending and it doesn't, you know, wrap up in three movies or less. But I felt that, you know, there was, Michael having to go off, um, leaving this comfort of this, you know, of his home, um, and then having to deal with a lot of dark side <laughs> before he could finally come back to the light side. And so it, it was, uh, it's funny that you bring that up because that's actually exactly what I was thinking of before um, I logged in. So <laughs> very similar, not as pretty. <laughs> And before we get into Michael's story and have him introduce himself, the little laughter you hear at the end of the background, we have the founder and chairman of Share the Will, First Sergeant Will Williams. Hello, Will. How you doing? Hello. How's everybody doing? We're good. I'm doing good. Well, we're staying dry and hopefully staying warm. Well, it, it, it is definitely chilly out there, but I am very, very interested in this uh, in this podcast. It uh, it, it touches me very deep, so um, I'm I'm waiting to uh, I'm waiting to hear the, hear the whole podcast. <laughs> All right, and without further ado, our special guest is Army Sergeant Michael Carlson, um, who openly discusses battle with PTSD, addiction, suicide, and hopes with helping other veterans battling their PTSD and ending veteran suicide. So, welcome, Michael. Thank you, Michael, for uh, having me on, and and uh, of course. Will and uh, very very glad to meet your acquaintance Brenda. Um, I'm very honored to uh, be able to be on this podcast with y'all and and yeah, 100% be able to share my story in hopes of uh, cutting down on the number of suicides. All right. Before we begin, Michael, I think um, I want to be completely upfront that I have been having this struggle for weeks and thinking about this interview because um, I think it's one of the scariest interviews to date for me, as I know your story has so much pain in it. And I fear it could cause more pain for you and possibly for listeners who are out there. However, I know, because I, I, Will was with me when he got this, I mean, he's a whole f- funny story. I got a tattoo on the side of my shoulder that says, uh, of a picture of a lion that says courage. And the idea mm-hmm. behind that is to be seen and to see others with unconditional love. So in our interview today, how can we make you feel safe in this space to be seen with unconditional love and to build a genuine uh, connection with you wow that's a really good question um you know um sharing with empathy 
um, always helps. Um, of course, during this podcast, I know 100% if it, if it needs to stop, um, at any point, um, I will let y'all know that, Hey, I don't want to, I'm done. I don't want to talk about that anymore. Um, but honestly, um, to, to have gotten to where I am right now, um, I have, I have really good coping skills and very good grounding techniques that I have learned over the, um, course of this past about year and three months of my recovery. And so I don't foresee that happening. Um, but if a, you know, if I do end up going into a flashback or, a, um, um, anything that would be remotely close to that, I know for a fact that, um, uh, Will's on speed dial. Um, oh, yeah. he, he's become one of my, uh, mentor, um, you know, discipler, um, you know, he's, he's very, very close with me. So if that were to happen, he knows where I live, um, as well as where I'm at. So I believe w- the safety portion of it would be okay. Um, as far as the other listeners, um, if it does put you into a state, um, to where you feel like you're having some sort of flashback or, um, putting you into such a depressed state that you would be contemplating taking your own life, um, excuse me, seven, eight, seven, seven, one, seven, three. So again, that's a eight, seven, 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 one, seven PTSD. Um, and you can dial that number and there's a combat veteran on the other end of that line, 24 hours a day, seven days a week that can answer and help, um, uh, guide you through that process. So and I think the key word, you know, when you say empathy and then the combat veteran, um, I, I wouldn't be the person to call. I haven't been to combat. So I, it, it, it's not that I want the words I would say are not to do harm, but how would I know and how would I be able to connect? So knowing that there's combat veterans on the other side, I, I think that has to um, give a level of confidence or courage to want to call. 100%. Um, and the hard part for us combat veterans is actually reaching out for help. Um, we get taught from, you know, basic training on that um, we have to be self-sufficient. You know, we have to be motivated to drink water and drive on. And, um, you know, um, when it comes to combat, you know, we don't have time to to really think about it or um, grieve or mourn or loss or, um, you know, it's just you see the threat, you take it out, you Charlie Mike, right? Continue mission. Um, so that's what makes it very difficult. And what it is, what made it extremely hard for me to reach out and admit that I needed some help. Um, so I would say to go back to your army values, you know, listeners, if you're out there and you're a combat vet, go back to your army values. But, um, remember that we travel in battle buddy teams, you know, all the time. Um, and there's people out here that love and care for you. And, so I'm not sure how I would necessarily answer the question of how you would know, um, Michael, but um, I don't, yeah, I'm not sure how to answer that question. <laughs> well, I think you did a great job Michael, there, Michael. But, but believe me, Michael, you would know. You would know without a doubt. Oh, I know. I will know um, for sure. Yeah, no, yeah. no. If, I, if I, I get mean, that state, I've been there. <laughs> no, I mean Michael Curtis. He, he you, oh. you would definitely know. Okay. Well, good. Well, let's, Mike, as we dig into your story, I'm going to turn it over to Brenda because I think she has some great inquiry and curiosity about you. And so, Brenda, if you want to take it away so that way we get to know Michael and we can maybe start up uh, at the beginning here. Sure. Um, so I, I know this is a very sensitive topic, so I, I will proceed with some caution. Um, but I think I'm most interested to kind of see how you evolve from needing help to helping others. Um, 
I guess where where your journey began um, to where it's led you to where you are now. Sure. Um, would you like me to start uh, early childhood or do you want me to go from combat on? Um, <laughs> I don't, I'm thinking, I'm like, it's that's, an, that's a lot to I, unpack. <laughs> it, it's a lot to unpack. It 100% it is. is. Um, it so is. I'll just, I'll just say this. Um, I did. So um, my earliest childhood memory was actually um, of me dropping a popcorn bowl. Um, I had, uh, it was made out of glass and my biological father, um, he was a very abusive alcoholic. And, um, so my earliest childhood memory was of me dropping this popcorn bowl and him shoving one of the pieces of glass through my hand because I had dropped the popcorn bowl. Um, so this began my vision of what a man is. Um, and, you know, him beating my mom or my sister or me, um, like I say, severe, severe alcoholic, severe, um, very, very abusive. My mom would end up divorcing him later on. Um, not very many years after that, I was probably six, I think. Um, and then I was adopted later on by another man who I would call my father. Um, he's the guy that owns a ranch and farm. And so I grew up as a farm kid, ranch, you know, ranching and farming and stuff. So, um, getting through all of that, going through high school, um, you know, again, my vision of what a man is, was someone who worked extremely hard. So he developed a, a very good work ethic in me. Um, but his view or, or my viewpoint as a child, um, looking for that love aspect, I, I never really got, Hey son, I love you. Um, which is something that I believe every, every kid out there wants to hear. Um, there's, there's not a kid out there that doesn't want to hear their dad say that they're proud of them and then that they love them. And, there's a lot of people who grew up with, you know, very loving, caring, kind fathers. Um, my dad was very, you know, he provided, um, he put food on the table. Um, he, he cared for us, you know, he showed up to the sports games and stuff like that, but I started to seek my love and, and approval through sports, um, through rodeo, through sports, but also through working hard. So, um, and growing up in that lifestyle, there was no reaching out for help. Um, it was always, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you man up and take responsibility, you know, you do all these things, but you never reached out for help. Um, which would develop into me going into the military, you know, um, once I joined the army, um, my story on how I got to join the army was, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. Um, and I had grown up on a farm and a ranch. And so when I got to, I went to West Texas A&M university first semester and I didn't go to class. Um, I, I found the wildlife, you know, um, been there, done that. Right. And so the, you know, freedom that comes with going to college and doing, um, not having that, you know, I have to get up to, in the morning to go feed cows or I got to get up in the morning to go feed horses or build fence mm -hmm. or do whatever before practice, um, or before school it wasn't there anymore. So I had all this freedom and I took, extreme advantage of it um did not go to class spent a lot of time you know i learned how to dance real good um i spent a lot of time at the bar learning how to dance with all the girls but um needless to say uh the college you know west texas a &M university was like hey if you're not going to come to class and, and actually get an education then you know you're not you're not here for the right reasons so uh i lost my scholarship went back home um still searching for what i was going to do got uh, pulled over 
And uh, I was arrested because I had a warrant out for my arrest for an unpaid uh, speeding ticket that I had not paid. And so while doing community service, I met a guy who was in the National Guard. He said he was going to take a few uh, hours off of my community service hours. You know, he'd give me a few extra hours if I'd go talk to the National Guard recruiter. Uh-huh. And I did. And I decided, you know, he, of course, you know, the recruiter tells me he's going to give me, you know, $8,000 signing bonus and I get to shoot guns for free. And I'd only have to go one week in a month because it's a National Guard and, um, you know, get some free college, all of these wonderful things. And I was like, man, and you guys are going to pay me to do this? Yeah. Where do I sign? You know? And of course, this is back before um, any of the, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, OIF, OEF wars were, were going on. Um, so I talked to him on February the 21st, I think is when I signed papers of 2001, February the 23rd or, or the 1st. I don't remember exact date, but um, that's when I signed my papers to say, hey, I'm going to do a delayed entry program. My dad was upset because he wanted me to work for him. I had told him that I would. So he was like, hey, be a man of your word. You know, so I agreed to do harvest with him that year through June um, and July. That's when wheat harvest is August time frame, June, July and August. And um, then I would join up uh, in September. And so got in, you know, finished harvest um that year and national guard recruiter came picked me up and took me down to amarillo texas the mets station in amarillo uh on september 11th 2001 that morning um so we showed up got into mets and i was you know i just got done swearing in put my hand on the bible and you know swear to defend the constitution of the united states you know and 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 came out and looked on the tv screen and saw that uh you know it looked like a movie is what it looked like. And I was like, what movie is that? I don't, I don't think I've ever seen the previews for that. And they said, no, man, a, a plane just hit the, just crashed into world trade centers. And I was like, Oh, what the heck? Like, was he drinking or what's, you know, kind of making a joke of it almost. But then, uh, pretty soon or very soon after that, they locked MEPS down. Um, so they canceled my flight to basic, um, and ended up putting me on a Greyhound bus, go to basic training. And I get there and the drill sergeant says, get off the bus. You're going to war. You know, and I was like, look, buddy, my my National Guard recruiter told me that I was just going to have to do one week in a month and I was going to get to shoot some guns for free and get some college. And they didn't say nothing about going to war, you know. And so um, anyway, that would change my life forever um, as it changed many Americans um, lives and and many people across this this whole world. Um, That was a huge, huge day for everyone. Um, I would spend the next 14 years active duty. Um, I did a total of 19 years, uh, 14 active, um, going from being an instructor, uh, Operation Noble Eagle, Operation Clear Skies, um, deployed to Iraq, uh, deployed to Kosovo. Um, and yeah, spent the rest of the time basically as an instructor, either combat arms training company, um, did a bunch of cool guys schools, whether it be, you know, the Pat Williams course or Air Assault or, um, I did many, many cool guy schools, if you will, which was awesome. Um, I love doing that kind of stuff. You know, we need people like that. We need soldiers out there and young and, and these young kids are coming up that, that are coming in. We, we need guys who are, who are able to defend the constitution and, and defend our rights and freedoms the, that we have and our free will. And, um, we need those things. Um, but there is, there is a, a flip side to that coin. And that is what, once once I got to Iraq, things changed for me. Um, so about the first two weeks into Iraq, I was still um, very new, 
um, young soldier. Um, and it was almost just like training. Like we, we trained for this stuff. We prepped up for it. And so it was, it was just like we were doing our training. Um, a little bit, you know, there was some differences obviously, but it was kind of surreal, if you will. It was basically just like doing training. So for, after about two weeks where we I was on, um, on a convoy, um, we were going from Talil to all the way up to, uh, Biop, which is Baghdad. And, uh, we had stopped off at, um, out Diwania, which is Camp Echo, um, little small cop that was out in the middle of nowhere, basically. And on the way in there, uh, I had noticed this white van that, uh, sitting on the side of the road, um, and it looked out of place, um, very squatted, you know, and we're trained up to look for these kind of things, but I was so new. I didn't, I didn't really want to say anything. So, um, I didn't, um, as we pulled into the, to the gate, we're downloading, getting all our equipment down and stuff. And I catch a glimpse of the, the van coming by and the two gate guards that were at the front. Um, I hadn't known them for very long, but I, I knew who they were. Um, very young kids. One was 18, one was 19. Um, and I seen that van. And then the next thing I know, the, the next thing that I remember anyway, is, uh, just, I mean, a, a, this wave, this concussion wave just came over me. Um, and I lost sight of where I was, um, you know, by the time too, I was, you know, three, four meters away from the vehicle that I was in. Um, I, I got my bearings, my hearing kind of came back a little bit and I looked over and it was just destruction. I mean, just the blast had taken, you know, the two, the two kids, you know, they were, they were, they were gone. Um, there was pieces of them around, but, um, they were, they were gone. Um, van was gone, you know, just a bunch of pieces scattered everywhere. And at that point in time, it was, it was that day that I realized, you know, this is not training. This is real. And, and, you know, I could lose my life doing this. Um, from that point forward, I also got, um, very hyper vigilant about looking for things out of place. Um, you know, it did that, that did it for me. Um, so anything that was out of place, whether it be a dead animal on the side of the road, you know, these, these Iraqis would take, take and put one five, five rounds inside of the dead animals on the side of the road. And as we drive by, they would blow it up. Um, of course, blowing up, uh, Humvees and, and, you know, vehicles traveling up and down the road or, uh, troops that were uh, moving in formation. Um, they would, <clears throat> there's a lot of those things. So, um, you know, uh, I, I saw many, many vehicles um, that had just been blown up. Um, and when I mean blown up, it looks like a shotgun shell. A shotgun went off in the side of it, except for the the pieces are about as big around as your fist, all the way up to, you know, as big as a human body that um, can go through the side of a Humvee, can go through the side of, uh, you know, these, these nine or 915s and Hemet's and hits and tanks and um pressure plates and there's just so many different ways that these that these people fought um they were very very dirty um in the way that they fought the, there was a bunch of um you know they would take fishing string and tie it across um right underneath bridges right at the gunner's head height um so it was like we were always countering what they were doing they were always coming up with new ways to try and kill us um so we always <laughs> stayed on high alert we were you know, always looking for snipers, always looking on bridge tops, always looking um, for things out of place, whether it be dead dogs, whether it be right, you know, pox, um, piled up rubble um, on the side of the road. Um, but sometimes you just don't, you know, you don't catch it. And so a lot of, lot of, lot of 
lives that were lost, American soldiers. Um, some of them I knew, some of them I didn't, but it began this um, alertness in me that, that, that would not go away. Um, it also created a hate inside of my heart. Um, so I grew up as a, I uh, grew up in a Baptist church. And so I believed in God. But when I got over there and I saw all this destruction, um, it changed my heart on what I believed God was. I said, you know, if, if I would, I came to the point where I was like, you know, if this is an, this is an omnipotent God and he's all powerful and all knowing and he can do anything. Why is he allowing these things to happen? And if this is a God that I learned about, it's not that good God that I learned about. If he's allowing this to happen, I don't want nothing to do with this God. So I kind of turned my back on him and uh, just figured I'd do it myself. You know, growing up that way, no one had to do it myself or no one had to pick myself up by my bootstraps and and drink water and drive on. And, and no matter what, the mission comes first. Um, that's what I did, you know, and I made sure that the guy to my left and the guy to my right, um, that we were safe, you know, as, as much as, as best I possibly could. That's, that's really what I cared about more than, more than even defending, you know, the freedom of, of, of our country or, or our rights or anything like that. It became more about just caring about my butt, battle buddy to my left and my right and making sure that we all got home safe. Um, so came back, I was very angry. Um, at the world. Um, when I came back home, it wasn't like I thought it was going to be. I, I, the, I viewed the world a whole lot differently. I, I really didn't value human life the way I did. I cared about my brothers. Um, you know, I tried to explain some things to my family that I was different, like they could see a difference in me, but I couldn't explain what was going on. Um, I couldn't explain the, the, the hate that I had in my heart for another person. Um, I couldn't explain the, um, just always on guard, always constantly watching hands and watching windows and just taking in all this information that my anxiety was always through the roof, which in turn would make me very angry. Um, I was actually, I would come to find out later that I was really sad. Um, yeah, I missed, I missed my brothers. I missed the ones that we had lost. And, uh, I didn't know how to be sad though. I knew, I knew how to be mad. I knew how to be angry. Cause that's what we're taught in the military. If you're, you know, you're mad cause you know, you're upset because you lost some of your friends, take it out on the enemy. And so that's what we did. Um, so in order to cover all of that stuff up and in court, you know, not to deal with it or not to think about it, um, to just try and get away from it. I dove right back into work. Um, I would drive, you know, dive into being an instructor and, and training, spinning guys up who were going over. I worked for a combat arms training company. So we were, we were getting guys ready who were getting ready to deploy. And uh, that's kind of how I dealt with it. I just worked. And then at night, what I would do is drink um, because I would have nightmares and visions of, of uh, you know, mangled bodies and, and um, explode. I mean, just <clears throat> a lot of, there was just a lot of, of war basically. Um, and all of those nightmares that I couldn't get them to go away. So I couldn't sleep. So in order to sleep, I would drink and that would, that would tend to help out. Um, the other way I would do it is to call my buddies who had been through it and be like, man, I'm feeling a certain way, man. I'm, I'm pissed off. I'm angry. And all I really want to do is get drunk, you know? And they're like, man, I'm feeling the same stuff. Me too, man. Let's get drunk. And so they come over the house and we drink on one particular occasion. Um, a real good friend of mine, that I knew actually before I joined the military, 
Um, his name was uh, Benjamin Grego. And uh, he'd come over to the house and he was struggling. You know, he had a family, kids. Um, and uh, him and his wife were, were fighting a lot. There was a lot of anger issues. He couldn't explain to her what was going on. He didn't want to tell her the truth about what was really happening um, or what he had been through. And so he came over to the house and I was like, let's just get drunk, man. Let's, let's just, you know, drink our problems away. Um, so that's what we proceeded to do. And, and, uh, you know, we got extremely drunk that night. Um, I passed out. Um, you know, we kind of cut it off right at about midnight or so. And, um, we had to be at the ranges the next morning. He didn't show up that next morning. And, and so I figured he was hung over um tried to call him he didn't answer his phone and i'm like all right well let's go pick up the range equipment and we'll go back to go pick him up so me and uh, a couple of other instructors um went and did that and went back kept trying to call him couldn't get a hold of him went to his uh ended up going to his house go pick him up i'm gonna go wake him up and uh uh we would find him uh hanging in his closet and uh that one uh that one hurt that one hurt bad um of course we called the cops and they did an investigation and made sure that there was no foul play between us and, and him, um, which that hurt too, you know, knowing that the cops would investigate us to see if we had anything to do with that. Um, like we, we were some way going to be held responsible. Um, it, it takes a toll on, on, it, it took a toll on me. Um, so I continued to drink and to numb and to mask and hide my true feelings. Um, I never, I never cried. Um, went to his funeral, not one teardrop. Um, it was just numb, and I kind of felt like just people just die, you know. Um, hey, hey, Michael. I was pissed. Yeah. Hey, can, can I stop you just for a second here? And I, I just sure. want to do a quick check in and hearing that because that is gut wrenching to hear. And I want to hear from Brenda and from Will on this after hearing that point in your life where. Man, you mean you've gone through all this stuff, and for them to hear or to see what they're feeling, and, and you know any questions to that from hearing that. So, um, uh, Brenda, what at this point, what are you feeling in, in Michael's story? Um, I I think I mean so far I'm I'm just kind of just um, floored because I mean it sounds like Michael went from a kind of you know just safe, secure farm life to quickly being thrust into training to going to Iraq, um, which is enough to have, you know, bring culture shock to anyone. Um, and then he was there. How long were you? I'm not sure, sure what the time frame was of when Michael was in Iraq, but it, it just sounds like he was there for a period of time where he was on such high alert and then having to come back and and having to try to pretend <laughs> that he wasn't just in this war-torn country, um, it's just it's a lot to absorb and to imagine what that must be like to go to another country and just see so many different things that other people will never see in their lives. And coming back and, and having to just kind of process and internalize that to where you have to be made to feel like you're just supposed to shrug it off and act like it, you know, that, that's just part of, of what we do. Let's just go back to, you know, <laughs> just go back to living your life and, um, and, and expecting people to, um, to not be 
just internally suffering from having to process so much alone. Um, and it's like he mentioned earlier, you know, especially with men, you're taught to just, in, you know, you don't talk about that. You don't cry. You know, you just kind of just keep going. And, um, you know, I think that is one of the fortunate things about um, being a woman is, is you're, you're allowed to cry and talk about your problems and express how you feel and you get hugs and made to feel better. And whereas with men, it's like, you don't, you don't talk about that. You, you know, right. You don't cry. And, and <laughs> you it's know, it's don't so cry. true. It's pride. It is 100% pride. Um, and it was, I mean, we're taught to be proud, even, you know, growing up in the country. Yes. 100%, you know, cowboys don't cry and, and, uh, you know, cowboys are real men and, and real men don't cry. And those are all false, very, uh, extremely false, um, Absolutely. viewpoints on emotions. Um, that's one of the things that I was taught going through, you know, Camp Hope was that, um, we get, we get, we take emotional regulation classes that describe actually that, um, sadness is an emotion. Anger is, you know, is a secondary emotion where usually something happens before we get angry, either we get disrespected or we get, you know, um, we're sad. We're, you know, there's something that happens before the anger hits. The problem is, is with, veterans it's got it's got to go to we don't feel because in combat there's not really time to feel we we don't have time to feel because if we start feeling and i'm I'm not saying that we don't feel we do feel but the the process of it of having those emotions you know if i'm sitting back crying because i have lost one of my brothers there's nothing wrong with that the thing about it is, is in combat, you don't have time to do that because there's always another mission. You always got to get back on mission. There's always another, you know, high value target that you got to go bust in a door. And if I'm busting in a door, I don't want the guy behind me grieving the loss of one of his brothers right about the time I'm breaching that door. And now I don't have another guy in the room with me, which puts my life in danger. Um, so when we come back home, um, we're not taught to go ahead and start and go through that grieving process to go through, um, the actual grieving process. Um, and the military is doing a, a, a good job now of trying to hone in on that. Um, and, and really been beefing up on the resiliency classes and stuff like that. But before I got out, that was really big. Um, but again, there's the pride issue. And that is, I don't want to be the guy that goes in and has psychological issues because now, you're going to take my weapon away from me. You're going to take, and I'm going to have to go through these class and I'm going to be known as the guy that has problems. And I don't want to be known as that guy because I want to continue my career. I still want to continue as being a soldier. I still want to continue doing these things. Um, so instead of doing that, what I did was relied on my buddies who had gone through the same thing, which were giving me false information because they're like, Oh, I felt that way too. So now to me, it became normal. It's just something that we had to deal with because that's what we go through. Yeah, and, and, and you're so, and you the first scene or in hearing your story at this point, seeing your friend commit suicide had to be the first red flag, a many red flags, to like yes. something's wrong here to, to change the course of action. I, I almost think of it as going towards rock bottom, like you, like there's no sure. stopping it. And, you know, Brenda, I think you described it perfectly there and in, in, in hearing that. But I, I want to get Will on this, too, um, as 
I always like to say he's our uh, senior uh, veteran. I don't want to call him old, but, but very mature <laughs> veteran. Because, well, this is nothing new to you in a sense of hearing this uh, from your time uh, serving uh, long ago and going through this. And now you see these veterans like Michael coming through. What What is resonating with you and them going through this? Oh, your your microphone's off, Will. Okay, well, I'll tell you, it's uh, it's nothing new. Uh, for Michael, Michael Carson, just take a breath for a minute. Uh, things like this is tough to talk about. Uh, you you were one heck of a man to be able to talk about it. You're talking about things that I couldn't. And I admire you for it. Just take a breath. It's not going to get any easier, but you just take a breath. Don't don't go so fast. Nobody's going to rush you. And just take your time. And all you other veterans out there, this is what we all go through. Uh, this is something we deal with daily, every night. Uh, believe me, I know exactly what you're talking about. So all you guys is listening, take a breath. Sit down, think about what Michael's talking about. If you need help, call Michael. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the 1-800 number. Uh, Michael's a PTSD counselor. Uh, he is good at it. And if you just don't want to talk to somebody you don't know, most of you know me. Call me. We'll sit down and talk about it. We'll call somebody who, who knows what they're talking about because most of you know I don't know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, one part will I, I want to add in here is what I know about Michael is, you know, you have family and friends around you and PTSD takes a toll on them just as well as you. The service, you know, a good friend of our Rick um, talked about not only are you serving, but your family serving or any family of any veteran, whatever's gone. You know, on this way of all the struggles you're talking about. Where, what toll, one, what toll does it take for your family? And I know sometimes there's this, you know, headbutting that you know what you're doing, this cowboy man up thing, and yet they're having this there. What resources are for them to help them guide through this just as much as it is for you? If, if they call those 1 800 numbers, there they is resources out there to help. There's different programs. Uh, you know, Blue Star Mothers will sit down and talk with you, uh, Survival. Families, we sit down and talk with you. Go Star Mothers, we sit down and talk with you. All these are different organizations that can just sit down and talk with you and find you help. Don't be too... Uh, Stubborn and hard-headed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that, what it that, is. That's a perfect way to... I was trying to find a pretty way to say it, but that is, that's it. That's it. That's me in a nutshell. 100 percent will you i mean you know quite a bit of my story uh, here thank you uh, by yeah. the way for that needed need uh, to take a quick quick little pause there but um yes call me i'll sit down and talk with you i'll come knock on your door mm-hmm. come pick you up take you out to dinner um yeah, well so for me i won't i won't feed you because you might get fat but i have a cup of coffee <laughs> <laughs> so get back to uh the family side of it um, that, that's the other side for me. I would, I ended up getting married, um, when I come back from Iraq. Um, and my wife at the time, um, extremely good woman, nurse. She cared about people. Um, she just still does 100%. 
So, but that being said, it started, I, 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 I was very good at hiding. I was very good at masking all of these, these things that I'm bringing up now. I never told anyone about, um, I always put my best foot forward. I always, you know, came out and I was the NCO that everybody looked to. I was the guy that, you know, senior instructor, um, and I was the guy. And so I couldn't have problems in my mind. And so I was very good at masking them and very good at hiding them and very good at manipulating the situation to make it about somebody else versus myself. I was quick to take on someone else's troubles, quick to take on, um, if somebody else was in, in, in need, I would reach out to them to the point to where I would drive myself into the ground, but I would never tell anybody about it because I was literally stubborn and hard headed and didn't want to, didn't want to be the guy that needed help. Um, I ended up drinking quite a bit and as y'all can see, got married, um, had my oldest Grayson, which brought a lot of good into my life. Unfortunately, my drinking and my PTSD symptoms mixed um, I was taking out a lot of my anger issues. I was taking out a lot of, um, my pain, my, my PTSD symptoms with, whether it be the anxiety or the depression. Um, I was flowing through those things. I didn't know what they were at the time, but I would drink to cover those up. And then when my wife would tell me to reach out for help or go get some help, I would tell, you know, I would basically go off on her and be like, look, I don't need no help. You know, I'm, I got all my arms. I got my legs. I'm good. And um, it took a toll on her because she could see the pain and the, and the hurt that I was that, that I had. But she didn't know how to help. Um, she wanted to. And her thing. Uh, another thing of it was, is she didn't understand it. She had never been overseas. She couldn't understand it. And I couldn't understand why she couldn't understand it. I'm like, look, don't you understand that I went to war and came back and, and, and this is how it is, is there is no change, you know, um, which is false too, but I didn't know that. And so I would take a lot of that out. And then when, of course, when I was angry, I mean, I put holes in walls and, and would go out to the bar instead of staying with her and use that as an excuse to go drink, um, because she was mad at me. Um, my sex drive went down horribly, you know, my, my, I didn't have no love. I had zero compassion. Um, zero regard for human life. I was very numb um, to anything, whether it be people passing away or losing the dog or losing, you know, just, I didn't have any, there was no sympathy at all. Um, I didn't know how to feel. And so um, I would get a DWI. Um, and in order to get away from that, I jumped on another deployment, deployed to Kosovo, um, supposed to be a peacekeeping mission, um, got over there. And it was, for the most part, taught some, uh, I, I was an instructor for uh, Modern Army Combatives, which um, is our hand-to-hand -hand combat. Um, so I was certifying level one, level two combatives and uh, doing urban operations, which is our, our uh, uh, kind of like SWAT team for the Army. And uh, so I was teaching guys how to do that and then ran into a, a problem, Serbians attacked the Northern gate and, and, uh, burned it, burned it down, killed a bunch of Ulick soldiers up there. And so they call the Americans in and we, uh, go handle the issue, kicking a few doors or, you know, zip tie, turned a few people over to Ulick and then, uh, came back, had to do a bunch of sling load operations. But biggest thing was, is, uh, we got into a firefight. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So rules of engagement were, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a peacekeeping mission. So the rules of engagement over there are, you know, if you shoot anyone, you, you're going to go to Leavenworth. And um, because there was no reason to be pulling the trigger, you know, but as it was, we ended up um, getting into 
it, it was the worst firefight that I'd ever been in. Um, about 18 of us, 400 of them, pipe bomb blew me up, got captured. Um, just, I got captured for a short, very short period of time. Um, luckily had a big OMP come save my tail and him and another infantryman. Um, one of my master sergeants got, he was a sergeant first class at the time, but ended up catching shrapnel. Um, uh, the guy that I was supposed to be protecting, uh, as we, as we went out, um, I was watching him dang near get beat to death. Um, and I held, I held a lot of, of guilt from that. Um, I'll get into that a little bit here in just a sec, but, um, anyway, we able to, we were able to, to, to get the situation under control, but we opened up, we, we had to, we had to fire. I mean, there, there was, it was, there's no getting away from it. And, uh, and there wasn't very many of the enemy there. The 400 that were there were, were a lot of just innocent civilians. You know, they were, they were rioting and doing all kinds of stuff, but it wasn't that they were doing life threatening stuff. It was a very minute few, probably 18 to 19 guys, maybe 20. Um, and then some guys back behind the berm, another 15 or 20 or so that had, you know, AKs and, and pistols and, um, ball off cocktails and, and pipe bombs and grenades. And, and so, um, we were trying to pick them off. Um, and as soon as the shooting started, everybody scattered, that's just kind of how it goes. But the, the bad thing on that one was, is there were so many, um, innocent there that, uh, the way they portrayed it on their news and I, we had TV, over here so you know it wasn't two days later you know after we got picked up and mad backed out and, and um you know we had we got the situation under control they were putting on the news that we were killing innocent civilians you know and they were just these bodies and and shot and people gunshot wounds from kids and and they made it seem like the americans were just opening up and and firing on these people that and that's, that was not the truth you know um and we got a phone call, our, our major did, from uh, President Obama, you know, and he was like, you tell your guys, um, thank you uh, for maintaining the discipline that they did because they had every right to turn that into a bloodbath. Um, and they didn't. And um, it, but it didn't help the situation any. Those, those images don't, don't ever leave my mind. You know, I still, I still have images of those, those kids and, and women and, and even men that, that had nothing to do with the firefight itself, um, being killed. And, um, I don't know. It's just, it was, it was just a different mission. Um, just a different mission than it was in Iraq. So come home from that. And, um, I was real messed up. I was extremely lost. Um, I didn't, my moral compass was so broken that I, I didn't even know right from wrong anymore. I didn't know what was right, what wasn't right. All I knew is I wanted to do what was going to make me feel better at that time, whether it be buying stuff or drinking, um, you know, whatever it was. I wanted to feel better right now, so I was going to do whatever it took to make me feel better right now, which would uh, lead to uh, more drinking, um, very anger, outbursts, um, and would ultimately lead to my divorce. Um, I, I did go and seek some help at a PTSD facility, finally, um, down in Waco in about 2016. Try and get some, try and get some help for it because I knew something was wrong and I didn't know how to fix it. So they guided me through a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy and cognitive processing therapy and told me about PTSD and 
and it it worked i did some equine therapy which was actually really really good um it helped me out a lot but it still didn't fix the 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 brokenness that i had on my family and the stuff that i had put all of my family through um my drinking had gotten so bad that people didn't even want to be around me to include my family you know i so i started pushing everyone away because i thought they were going to hurt me. as long as long as i was by myself i didn't hurt anyone and no one hurt me um is what my thought process was which which is horribly wrong because there's people out there that love me and cared for me they just didn't know how to tell me to go get help and i was so dang stubborn and hard-headed i didn't want to reach out for help i thought i could do it on my own and um you know that's one of the problems today and that's you know but anyway um i i see i just want i just want to point out i see brenda over there i almost feel her intensity to want to reach out of COVID time and just come run and give you a hug right now is that true brenda do i want to see you come and just give him the biggest hug that and and just you know thinking about just all the all the things that michael has seen and been through and growing up as a baptist girl myself you know um all i can think about is this um message I was listening to the other day um, where the speaker was being interviewed and she was just talking about, she's a quadriplegic since she was a child and just how uh, one of the best things one of her friends had told her was talking about how sometimes God allows, you know, bad things to happen for, for a good reason. And we might not always know it. Why? (laughs) But, you know, it just, I just, I keep thinking about that. And I'm sure I'm not saying it as eloquently as she said it, but, um, but, you know, it, it just makes me think of, of um, some of the challenges that people go through. And she was talking about how, you know, if whenever you're going through a hard time, it's really good to hear or be around other people who've just kind mm-hmm. of experienced even more because it really puts a lot more into perspective about how small our problems sometimes are compared to the other struggles that other people are going through. So that's what I just keep thinking about. And I would give you a hug if I were there. Mike, but I, would <laughs> I, I would take it. <laughs> <laughs> so getting, and actually getting to that, you know, that brings right up to what your, your question was, Brenda. Um, and so going from all of that, you know, I went through after my divorce, um, that was kind of the last good thing that I had to hold on to. My children um, brought, you know, I could see good in the world with them. You know, it, kids are very innocent. You know, they haven't been corrupted necessarily by the world yet. And so they're just, you know, they're just, uh, they're just pure of heart, you know. And so that was losing access and losing, you know, being able to be around them. That was the last good that I had, really. And so um, I turned, I actually turned to drugs, Um uh, I'm still struggling with sleep big time, not just sleep apnea, but like nightmares, horrible night terrors. Um, and I hated them, you know, waking up, not knowing where I'm at looking for my M4 and, and, and trying to figure it all out. Um, and, and, but again, I was trying to do this all on my own. So I figured I would, um, not go to sleep and I wouldn't have nightmares. So, um, I knew where to, to get some drugs. You can always find drugs anywhere. And so I started using cocaine um when that wasn't good enough and it's too it was very expensive and it didn't last very long um i was introduced to methamphetamines um cheaper longer lasting high but will completely destroy um your mind um the the chemicals that are inside of that mixed with my paranoia my anxiety i mean it just 
it really pushed it to a whole nother level. Plus mixing that with alcohol, um, isolating myself. No one really knew where I was. Um, no one knew what I was doing. I hid it from everyone, or at least I thought I was hiding it. I really wasn't, you know, a lot of people knew what I was doing, but I, I in my mind, I thought I was, I was staying on top of it. And this was just kind of my punishment for what I had done overseas, um, is how I viewed it very skewed, very horrible way to look at things. But, um, you know, that was, that was how I viewed it. And, um, after about six months on methamphetamines, um, I didn't, I didn't have the desire to live anymore. Um, you know, I didn't have my kids. I didn't have my wife. I didn't have my family. My brothers were committing suicide left and right. I figured, you know, maybe they, maybe, maybe they got the right answer. Maybe that's it. You know? Um, so I took every medication that the VA had prescribed me, um, did a bunch of methamphetamines and drank as much alcohol drank. as it can hold. And, um, something I'm not proud of by any means, you know, I'd wake up three days later, mess myself, um, keep all myself, look at and choke to death, you know, and I couldn't figure out why God wouldn't just let me die. I was very, I remember shaking my fist at him. Like, why don't you just have somebody take me out? You know, why won't you just let me die? There's no reason for me to live anymore. And um, God had another plan for me, though. Um, I didn't know it at the time, but one of my drug dealers outside had said, hey, that dude's crazy. Don't go in that room. You know, I cleaned myself up a little bit, and he was like, he needs God or something. I'd end up downloading a version Bible app on my phone. Mm-hmm. I was about to go re-up on some more drugs uh, at this lady's house that I got drugs at. And um, the first verse that came up was uh, out of Proverbs talking about the promiscuous woman, and it said, do not you know, go to the lady's house. And I was like, what the heck? They don't say that in the Bible. You know, I hadn't read the Bible a lot of years. Um, matter of fact, I don't think I had cracked the Bible open since I was 10 or 11 years old. Um, so I cracked it open, looked at it. And sure enough, there was that verse. And I was like, holy, what the heck? You know, freaking out, thinking people were after me and people would hack my phone and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> Paranoia was set in. But it really was um, God speaking to me through that, through that Bible app, through devotionals. Had a guy come in, pray over me. Um, a few days later, um, and, um, you know, when he prayed over me, he said, you know, you kind of, you kind of tie God's hands when you're sitting still, you know, God can't move a parked car. Um, you know, if you're moving, he can guide you back to the path. And that stuck with me, that moving part stuck with me. So went home that night and, and, uh, you know, it wasn't a few days later, I called a buddy of mine, Vietnam veteran friend. And I said, look, man, Hey, I, I don't want to tell you what I'm doing. Cause I was extremely ashamed. You know, there's a lot of shame and guilt, um, with that. And I said, but I, I, I need help. And, uh, and it was obviously from another combat veteran. And he was like, I'll be there in 15 minutes, came, pick my stuff up, moved me into his house. About 10 days later, I moved from Lubbock to, uh, to Colleen, Texas, moved in with a PTSD roommate, um, a roommate that I was at a PTSD facility, the earlier one in 2016 started drinking again. I was like, look, I can, I, I got a handle on it now. Now that I'm away from it, I, I can handle it. I'll just drink on the weekends. And that didn't last, you know, um, fell right back into drugs. But that whole time I was still reading these devotionals and it was, you know, God was convicting my heart to do something more. And so I just kept reading and kept reading. And at that point in time, I felt God just put it on my heart. He was like, you got to go get some help. You got to check back in somewhere, you know, do something. So I checked into temple to a substance abuse program. Went in there and uh, and and they do the best they can with you know what they got. Um, 
and but it just wasn't enough for me it wasn't that wasn't going to give me the healing i needed you know one of the ladies in there she was given a class on ptsd and talking about anxiety and depression and hypervigilance and and homicidal ideation suicidal ideation you know all the things that are that go along with ptsd and i was like look lady i got all of those everything you just put up on that board right there i got them all how do you how do I get rid of it? I'm, I'm t- I don't want to live this way anymore. And I got all that stuff, but I don't want it, you know? And she's like, sir, you can't talk about your combat trauma here. You know? And I was like, where the hell do I go to talk about it then? You know? And, uh, luckily there was a mentor from camp hope there. One of the, pro- you know, it's just a, it's a PTSD program. Um, that's based, it's a faith-based program. Um, and I read the prologue to this combat trauma healing manual that he gave me. And it was like, it was telling my story. Um, and I was like, where's this place at? This is what I've been searching for. This is what guys put on my heart. And within five days I went to camp hope. Um, while there I got taught, you know, the emotional regulation classes I talked about. Um, I got taught about PTSD and how it's a chemical imbalance inside of the brain. Um, we went through classes and got tools on how to manage my anger, um, addiction classes, um, Bible study, going to church, going to NA, going to AA, did all the cognitive behavioral therapy, cognitive processing therapy, EMDR, one-on-one sessions, all with a bunch of other combat veterans. And, uh, you know, when I showed up there, I, I would try to hide behind my PTSD even. I would be like, well, I got PTSD so you wouldn't understand. And the mentor was like, man, I got four deployments to Iraq and two to Afghanistan. Why don't you tell me what's really going on? You know, and I'm like, oh, well, man, I'm a, I'm a meth addict and, and an alcoholic you know, and I'm divorced, you know, and he was like, dude, I've gone through two divorces. Um, I used to drink, you know, spent 10 years trying to drink myself to death and about seven years with a needle in my arm. Why don't you tell me what's really going on? You know, and I was like, oh, uh, well, I guess I'm, uh, I guess I'm sad because I miss my friends. I guess I feel like a piece of crap father, you know, um, and he's like, now that's something that we can deal with. That's something that can be corrected. That's something that we can work through together. If you're willing to face it, if you're willing to face the effects of war with brutal honesty, then we can work through these issues. Um, so after 11 months, <laughs> it was supposed to be a four to six month program, but ended up being 11 months. Um, while at Camp Hope, I would lose my mom, um, my aunt. And my grandmother um, is a perfect spot for me to be because there was a bunch of guys who really cared about me, um, cared about my well-being, my health, um, and coached me all the way through that and mentored me all the way through that, mourned with me, grieved with me. Um, You know, we went through fun times, bad times, all of it all together with an accountability team of guys who wouldn't let me go back out and go drink, who wouldn't let me go back out and go freaking smoke meth or snort cocaine or smoke weed or do these you know fights or um you know women or buy stuff or isolate or any of that stuff they would not let me do that they held me accountable and um it was at that point that i I came to the realization that this is where god wants me he wants me to do the exact same thing that these mentors and these people who have done that and to be an accountability partner for my brothers who are going through and struggling with the exact same things that i'm going through you know i mean it's not easy um it's not easy and and it takes a real man now I know what a real man is. A real man reaches out for help. A real man cries when they lose a loved one. Um, a real man is okay with being sad. He's okay with being happy. He's okay with experiencing joy. Um, 
But the ultimate huge factor for me was knowing that all of the stuff that I had done, um, all the, you know, the times I didn't see my kids for two years, you know, didn't even, wouldn't even get in contact with them. Um, but that I was forgiven for those things, um, that I have somebody that's bigger than me that out there, you know, this God that I turned my back on had been with me the whole time. He'd been with me through every firefight, protected me. How many times that I've been dead by now and didn't let me die, you know? Um, and so I realized that, uh, you know, everyone falls short of the glory of God and that we're all forgiven no matter what we've done, no matter if we've taken life haven't taken life um whether it's you know hadn't been there for your kid you know there, i still had the opportunity to be a dad i still have the opportunity to be a dad if i'll step up to that challenge and um and do those things and realize that god's got good plans for me um and it just kept i kept pursuing my faith became extremely strong um you know i, I ran across guys that were missing their double amputees uh, both legs blown off in Afghanistan and they're mimicking um, this, this faith. And they just, they have this faith. And I'm like, what is it? What, what does this guy have? He wants to continue to live and he's thriving. He's actually living a good life. What is he doing? Oh, he's connecting with other combat veterans. He's actually talking about the things that are bothering him with these other combat vets. He's believing in something bigger than himself. He's serving others now which is what god calls us all to do is to be of service that's why we joined the military in the first place because we wanted to serve you know um so who better for god to use in a bunch of hardened combat veterans um to go out and minister and disciple and 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 pull these other guys in and help other families help other veterans and so i just felt this calling um and sure enough it just kind of just kept going and kept going. I graduated Camp Hope um, and moved back down into the Round Rock area where my children are at. Um, I've seen them. I talk to them almost every every day to every other day. Um, FaceTime. Hey, I was hey, Michael. Before because I was spending. Yeah. I looked like we've frozen up after the softball games. We've frozen up. But I, I, before we, you know, go through all that, I wanted to take a really quick second here. Because in telling your story and before asking a question, would it be okay if we can feel sad with you? Because I feel I feel sad in here, and that's one of the things I I I, I truly feel sad with that. Would that be okay? One hundred percent. This is what part of being in this this family that Will you know said earlier. You know that he's accepted me into his family. Um, this is part of what I believe that it is, is is us being a family together and mourning together and grieving together and being sad together, but being happy together too. So yes, please. Um, I, I feel I, the saddest, but I feel the joy that you had at the end there. But yeah, please go ahead, Brenda. Yeah, no, I feel I feel the same. I mean, I, I feel, um, you know, a lot of sadness um, because I know, you know, Michael's been through a very, very challenging time, you know, and there's a lot of shame and guilt he's been talking about and just being able to go and process this grief and channel it into something else. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of sadness there, but I mean, I feel like ultimately, as we continue to listen to him, I, I think what I, I'm gathering and just my, my main takeaway right now is just there's always hope. You know, um, he sounds always like he, he, he got to a very low point 
Um, but then even at that lowest point, he still met someone else who was <laughs> probably in an even worse <laughs> case scenario. Like, yeah, dude, that's all of us. So <laughs> let's talk. Everybody's been through something, right? Exactly. Uh, so it, it sounds like it, it's a really good environment for him to have been in, like just. Yeah. That's, perfect that's storm a good, of, of, of just, you know, incidences that led him to that Camp Hope to where he was surrounded by all these people at just the right time. So I, um, I, I think that's, that's kind of a really um, good story for other people to hear about and to kind of see that there's, you know, these resources out there and that, you know, just trying to normalize the conversation, you know, because it sounds like it took a lot for him to get to this point. I mean, I, I we can see your struggle and still discussing your challenges, but it, I'm okay sure you would not right? have been, yeah. Huh? Yeah, so well, it's okay early, you said. yeah, well, earlier you said that, you know, you hadn't discussed a lot of this stuff, you know, when you were younger and going through it, but it sounds like taken a lot for you to get to this point. And, um, um, but I, I think that's kind of where you're coming from in this conversation is just trying to get other people to understand that it's okay to talk about this. You know? Yeah, we got a saying um, okay. that it's, it, it's okay to not be okay. Um, it, it, it is, it's okay to not be okay. And that's where it led, led up to, you know, when I moved back. So being back in my kid's life, um, you know, that's huge for me. That's part of my recovery is, and, and, and wanting and to stay sober, wanting to stay clean, um, wanting to be uh, a better man. Um, I, I had to want to want those things one, but the biggest thing was, is, um, I felt the calling and the need, the needs there. Um, we all need to, to, to lean on each other in these, these times, you know, and especially with, with, you know, COVID the way that it's going on and everything else. But so moving back down here, it was hard because I got out of camp hope and now I've got a graduation certificate that says, Hey, you completed the program. Good job. You know, way to go. You've worked through a lot of these issues. You got a lot of tools, uh, out and, and do something, you know, and they set me up, you know, they, they, got me to where I got into a vehicle you know I was homeless when I got there so they were able to, to help me out with a with a home and stuff like not really a home but get me started on one uh, make sure that I had something to do but you know it and it reaches a point though to where I needed something different down here in central Texas we don't have a whole lot necessarily I mean there's a there's resources but I didn't know where they were um so I went up to a place called Heroes Night Out and that's uh, just so happened to go across the place, walk in there and lo and behold, here comes Will Williams, you know, didn't even know him, never met him before. And, and he comes in and, and just loves on me and, and um, you know, gave me his number and we got in contact. And I kind of told him about the vision that I had of helping people in the, in the central Texas area, you know, combat veterans and their families that are struggling with these same issues. But that's kind of my calling. Um, and being able to work with them through that, um, and help and being able to help share the will, um, you know, that's my service work. That service work makes me feel like I'm a part of a family. It makes me feel like I'm doing something that's worthwhile. That's actually meaningful. Um, you know, working with heroes night out and, and going up there and having coffee with veterans and sitting around talking about these stories, um, and hosting warrior groups, um, at, at my local church here and first responder groups for guys struggling with, line of duty stress and the same things we go through, you know, it's hard. It's a lot harder sometimes for police officers because 
they're not fighting Haji. You know, they're not, they're not fighting. They don't know their enemy necessarily. You're fighting their own people. They're fighting Americans, you know? And so it's very difficult for them again, to reach out for help. Um, and that that's part of being a man or part of being in service or part of being, you know, a police officer. Um, and then same thing goes with combat veterans. When they get back, who do you go talk to? Where's the hospital? You know, that's, that's one of our things is where's, where's a good environment for me to go talk about these things where I'm one, not going to get thrown in jail. If I say some stuff, you know, if I talk about, I'm wanting to kill my neighbor or something, you know, and then somebody overhears that they call the police. Now I'm in jail for a terroristic threat on my neighbor. That doesn't, that doesn't work out so well for the veteran, you know, when realistically what he was saying was that he's pissed off because he's playing his music too loud or something, you know, <laughs> the way that comes out uh, and people view veterans differently. You know, we're, we're, we're well-trained. Um, and what we do. So we say things like that. People take it serious. And so we have to be careful what we say. So it creates an environment, a hospital, if you will, for, for veterans to come talk with other veterans without being judged. Um, We're coming to the end. I want to get a perspective from Will real quick here. Um, uh, Will, in listening to everything you know that Michael's been saying there, it really talks about a responsibility of, of a mentor-mentee thing. Uh, as a veteran like yourself, like what are the, some of the characteristics of being a good mentor and what's the responsibility on the mentee side? What does that role look like? Well, the main thing, Michael touched on a lot of them, uh, but the main thing you guys have to remember, you other veterans that's out there, you're not alone. We always think we're alone now because we're out of the military. There's many, many veterans in this area, and we all got to sick. All you got to do is find, we're easy to find. Especially the old guys, we all have these hats that we wear. Everybody see them. These these veterans hats. Every everybody see them everywhere. You see a hat, you walk up to him, shake his hand, and he have you six. There's no doubt. Well, thanks, Will. Brenda, as we, as before we go here, is there anything you would like to add? Yeah, I just you know I really hope that someone will hear this and who might be in the same situation as Michael or or Will. Um, and, you know, just we'll, we'll look into some of these resources. I think, you know, just I keep thinking about how um, depression is, and just PTSD is kind of a silent killer where, like, if you break your arm or if you're hurt, you go to the hospital, you get it fixed. But when you can't really explain what's wrong with you, how do you get help for that? And hopefully someone will hear Michael's story and be like, you know, that's that's what's happening to me. Kind of like he said, you know, where he found other people who are going through the same things, you know, that, that yeah. were willing to talk about it with him and make him help him get to the core of his problems. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I just, I hope that people know that it's, you know, it, they might not know where to get help or how to get help, but there is help out there. And um, I think that Camp Hope sounds like it was one of the resources that really helped Michael, but there's also, um, the phone lines that you can call that Michael gave out earlier for the PTSD phone line. And I know Will does a lot of, um, does have the helpline as well. So um, hopefully we can put those in somewhere like in the comment section where people can reach out and get the, get those resources if they weren't able to make it this far into the podcast, because I know the subject matter is very, very difficult. Hey, you guys, you don't have to go anywhere. If you, if you want to talk, you need help. You call Michael, you call myself, you call any other veteran, we will come to your house. That is not a problem. And we got meetings too. Um, you yeah. know, I, I host them. I lead meetings 
where we do this exact stuff. We work through these issues. Um, and I'm, it, it is 100% the hospital. That's where it's at and what I was getting at earlier. And you, um, so call and me. I'd love to hear your story. There's food. There's food. There's food. Yeah, there is food. There is food. Yeah, we're getting sponsored up. I, I, I talked to Torchy's Tacos, actually. Oh, yeah. Um, they're helping out. Um, the Will, the Share the Will, um, they've, they've helped out on several meals from, from Chicken Express. He, he knows a couple of people around the area. Yeah. <laughs> he knows some local restaurants that have helped us out. Uh, the Lions Club's been huge. Heroes Night Out. All of those 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 organizations are, 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 are helping us out, feeding us. Um, and it's actually pretty cool. You know, we deal with some real issues, but yeah. also, you know, it's, it's also not just nice to come in contact with other combat vets, you know, um, just like-minded individuals getting together and working through stuff and being able to, uh, to, to lean on each other. So. Well, well, Michael, thank you for having the courage to share your story. Uh, I know we talked a few weeks back, you know, you don't know if you're sure if your story you might say now could have impact six months from now, a year from now, or two years ago. You just don't know. And uh, you were really, uh, in that conversation, a big believer in reaching out and connecting that. So thanks for coming on here. Uh, I know it's hard. I know uh, each time it's always difficult to tell your story, but I have a belief the more and more you tell it, the I wouldn't say easier, the calmer it becomes, and it, it just is so transformational. So thanks for coming on and, and sharing your story. Hey, Michael, thank you so much. Um, Will, always, man. Love you, brother. Um, oh, love you, brother. You. Brenda, I'm so glad to have met you and uh, mm-hmm. look forward to maybe actually meeting you face-to-face yeah, um, at some point. Yeah, and I'm absolutely. thinking I'm thinking there's going to be a giant hug. Like You're just going to see her come running out of the corner and yeah. just like a just a really huge <laughs> hug. And, and I, I actually use the version app too, Michael, and uh, I'll be praying for you. Well, thank you. Thank you so very much. I'll always take prayer. Tell me I'm a lucky man But I don't really understand What any of this has to do with love I tell her she's my only one The mother of my firstborn son But sometimes I know that she feels stuck And I can't help wonder too Where I'd be if not for you A vagabond or worse under the ground in this long, hard road we're on Sure ain't easy, but you keep me strong Oh, I'm a lucky man Now we have a daughter too and in her eyes I see you Even though they all say she looks like me And all the mistakes we made There ain't a single one I trade Cause in the end we wound up where we're supposed to be And I can't help wonder too Where I'd be if not for you A vagabond or worse under the ground in this long, hard road we're on Sure ain't easy, but you keep me strong Oh, I'm a lucky man
the ground In this long, hard road we're on Sure ain't easy, but you keep me strong Oh, I'm a lucky man 